There are still donkeys on the Mount of Olives today. Every time I've been to Israel, every time I've been processing down the Mount of Olives with a palm cross or a palm leaf in my hand, I've been asked over and over again, all the way down, whether I wanted to take a Jesus taxi, because that's what the tradesmen call the donkeys, which they hire out for rides down the Mount of Olives. I've watched several brave pilgrims have a go on their Jesus taxis. It's emphatically not dignified. Several pilgrims struggle to stay on, let alone make much progress. And even if we accept that Jesus was used to riding, which we don't know, he'd still have been much bigger than his steed. You need to imagine his feet hanging low on either side, pretty close to hitting the ground as he was carried along. So I know that we call it the triumphal entry in our Bibles, but in reality it was not. It was the very opposite of a grand entrance. And I think that was deliberate. Riding into Jerusalem was the act of a king. Those walking in with him proclaim him king, as Jehu had been proclaimed king, with garments and palm branches scattered on the road before him, as in 2 Kings 9. Matthew quotes from Zechariah 9 to show that this was a conscious fulfilment of scripture. The word Hosanna, the crowds are shouting, is a word that means save us or rescue us. So Jesus is being acclaimed as king, as a rescuer, as one who has come in the name of the Lord to rescue them. And for the first time, by riding on his Jesus taxi, Jesus allows and accepts that claim. Previously, as in John 6.15, where we read that they wanted to come and make him king by force, Jesus has always stepped back from public acclamations, a public acceptance that he is the king. He dismissed the crowds then and headed off alone to pray. So now for the very first time, Jesus allows them to acclaim him as their king and yet does so in a deliberately humble way. This isn't a magnificent war horse that he's riding. He's not charging into Jerusalem at the head of an army with swords and shields. His feet are bumping on the ground as he's carried by a young animal probably barely big enough to sustain his weight for long, and the weapons his followers are carrying are palm branches and their battle cries are words of praise. Jesus is saying to everyone, yes, I am your king, but, but you have no idea at all what it means to be your king, no idea at all what it will mean for me to rescue you, no idea at all what it means to come to Jerusalem in the name of the Lord. John 12, 12 tells us that those who'd already gathered for the feast heard he was coming and went out to greet Jesus with palm branches. So we've got this extraordinarily vivid scene of people coming down the Mount of Olives and people coming out from Jerusalem to greet him. And all of these accompanying him, acclaiming him king. Matthew 21, 10 tells us that the whole city was stirred as Jesus entered. The whole city was shaking. For the word is the one from which we get the word seismic. The whole city is shaking. Jesus has come to the feast. He's publicly accepted for the first time that he is king, though he's done so in as is an unmilitary way as possible, with his feet bumping along either side of his Jesus taxi. The whole city is shaking, wondering what Jesus is going to do next in his first public act as their king. 
need you to picture the scene for a moment. As you come down the Mount of Olives and through the Garden of Gethsemane on either side of the road, you come to the Kidron Valley, which runs outside the city wall almost like a moat. Ahead of you is the Antonia Fortress, looking down to the left over the Temple Mount so that the Roman garrison could keep watch over it. And there to its left is the Temple of Herod, visible above the city wall that stretches along the Kidron Valley to your left, the whole length of the Temple Mount, and then turns the corner. Jesus has a choice to make as he faces that landscape. They're expecting, maybe hoping, that he will use his undoubted divine power and rescue the temple, that he will hosanna them there and then by leading them against the Antonia Fortis straight in, in our faces, leading them as an army against Rome. That's what the people wanted after the feeding of the 5,000. But in his first act as their king, Jesus does not move against Rome, doesn't make any military move. Instead, to the shock of everyone, Jesus turns to the left and claims the right to judge the temple instead. Verse 12 tells us that Jesus overturned the, the, overturned the tables, maybe with the disciples' help, of all who were trading there. We can imagine the chaos of precious coins and animals scattered in all directions. We can imagine the anger mounting against Jesus as order is finally restored. And Jesus's first statement as their king is to tell the nation and its temple that they have lost their way. It is written, verse 13, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The trade was happening in the court of the Gentiles the place reserved within the temple for the people of the nations of the world to seek after God. Israel had been called in Exodus 19.6 to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, to represent, in other words, God to the world and the world to God in prayer and worship. Jesus' anger as their king is focused on summoning the nation back to that vocation. And even in a limited way, that happens on Palm Sunday for the, the, the disabled seek Jesus out in the temple and find healing, though the regulations ban them from entering. And the children are moved to sing Hosanna to the son of David in the temple, the son of David who is calling the nation back to God. The cursing of the fig tree is an enacted parable that the king came looking for fruit. But when no fruit was found, judgment upon the temple was announced, as had been prophesied in Isaiah 5 and will be prophesied by Jesus himself in the parable of the tenants later on in the same chapter of Matthew's Gospel. The king came looking for fruit and no fruit was found and therefore judgment was announced. So I ask, as I nearly always do, what does all this mean for us today? Well, life as normal has been overturned, has it not? And in a bewilderingly short time as well. It's been painful and it's been disorientating. Like everyone else as a church leadership, we've been scrambling to keep up with events, scrambling to hold on to little bits of normality in the chaos. Although we have been comforted often by reflecting upon the holy pause, because so often when we brought a project or an idea to the Lord, during the holy pause and after in prophetic sessions, the Lord has said, not yet, not yet. He has been calling us to pause even before this happened. 
but life as normal has been upended around us. Many of us feel more vulnerable than before, whether that's emotionally or relationally or financially. The future seems to have retreated from us and we're stuck in this confused and confusing now, a, a holding pattern in which so many freedoms have been abruptly curtailed. Even the cancelling of Wimbledon was a bit of a body blow, was it not? It felt like the summer or that strawberries had been cancelled. When Jesus overturned life as normal in the temple, it was to summon the nation and the temple back to its call. They'd lost their way. Jesus had come to Hosanna them back to his father, as he would do on the cross and through the resurrection. As life as normal has been overturned and upended around us, I wonder in what ways Jesus might be calling us back to God's purposes as well. One way is, I think, by showing us what's most valuable. We've had more time to talk to family and to friends who aren't local. Sarah's family, all four sisters and their mum, now share a Zoom call every Sunday. It's not that they weren't close, they are, but they're purposefully connecting every week and making sure a member of the family speaks to their mother every day. Their mother wasn't aware of feeling isolated, stressed or down, but has commented just how much she'd been lifted. And they have laughed a lot together. I've also had the privilege of being involved in loads of Zoom calls with folk from Highfield. And it's amazing how we all light up when we see one another. I've been reminded over and over again just how significant relationships are, particularly at a time when we can't touch one another. I was struck when leaving my mum recently that she faced months without anyone touching her at all might even make us value the peace more when we can finally touch one another again. We're being reminded just how much relationships matter. So I encourage you to connect with a prayer six. It's not too late to do so. Connect or reconnect with your small group. It's not too late to sign up for either of these and help to pray one another through this time when the whole of life has been upended around us and we find ourselves a little lacking yeah, lacking in, in direction, lacking in a sense of how things should be. Another way is, I think, by calling us to grow in our relationship with God. We need to be, as 2 Corinthians 1 has it, we need to be comforted people if we're to comfort others. So we've got to receive that from God ourselves first. Jesus overturned the temples to call the nation back to God. Similarly, in our upended and overturned lives, there is an opportunity for us also to start afresh and seek God's face for ourselves. I am not saying it's easy, particularly when two parents find themselves suddenly homeschooling and homeworking while trying also somehow to be friends, parents, caterers and somehow lovers along the way. But start small. Ten minutes maybe. Read a portion of the Bible. There are lots of apps out there that will help you. Scripture Union and others now provide Bible reading notes in apps of all kinds. And pray. Acts might be a good short summary to begin with. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving and supplication or asking. Maybe choose the same place in the home, even the same chair, the same time, day by day, so that you come to associate it with prayer. 
I'd love to recommend the book Sacred Rhythms to you. It's by a writer called Ruth Haley Barton. Ruth Haley Barton, I'd really recommend her all of her writing. But this book, Sacred Rhythms, is a good introduction to finding better spiritual rhythms in life. It is available from Amazon, it's available on Kindle to download, it's available as an audiobook as well. Sacred Rhythms by Ruth Haley Barton. Take the opportunity of this upending of life as it has been to seek to grow in your relationship with God. And a third way this upending of life may be helpful is giving us an opportunity to take stock of how we're living. It's already noticeable how this pause is proving helpful to the environment. Even as short as it is, levels of pollution are dropping in Italy and China. It may be the case that fish stocks could recover somewhat. Many species of birds and insects and bees show signs of recovering numbers. The quietening of human background hum around us has suddenly made nature seem much louder, hasn't it? When life as it always has been gets upended like this, I, you know, I say that, but my mum's 82, she's never known anything like this. We realise that life as it has been lived isn't necessarily life as it has to be lived. What are you reflecting about? What changes are this season prompting you to make? You've got the opportunity to rethink the life of work. How many work-related journeys are really necessary, for example? Will enforced homeworking become something many of us choose as our new normal going forward? We've got the opportunity, forced and uncomfortable as it is, to rethink family life and church life and leisure life. It may be for many of us that only a restart is necessary. You know that situation when you, you switch something off for 30 seconds and then reboot it. Sometimes, though, it's more serious, more significant. You have to reboot from another startup disk to try and diagnose what's wrong. Or worst case scenario means wiping the hard drive and starting all over again. So it might be minor, it might be moderate, it might be major. But life has been upended. How are you going to reflect? How are you going to make changes for the future? What is the Lord saying to you? Life has been upended. It's not going back to normal next week or even next month. It might be uh, not until the summer. In the midst of the craziness of coping with life being overturned and all of the change that's forced upon us, take the opportunity to ask deeper questions about how life should be. Not how life was, but how God might want life to be with Sabbath rest, with a good devotional balance with less of the crazy, pressured, headlong hurry that was life just three weeks ago, with less of the crazy pursuit of money and possessions that turned even Jesus's humble entry into traders, pestering pilgrims to take Jesus' taxes as they follow him in his footsteps down the Mount of Olives. So in this season, where life has been upended, what is Jesus wanting to overturn in your life and why? Risen Lord Jesus, please be present with us in our homes, our relationships, our networks. Please show us how you are calling us to change in this season, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. <laughs>